people experience many different things across the lifespan. And if you're in a relationship, you're experiencing those things together. And it's really profound how challenging that can be and also obviously how beautiful that can be. Hello, I'm Olivia Cummings, and on this podcast, I'd like to introduce you to the people who inspire me in my life and work as a jeweler, designer, and founder of Cleopatra's Bling. In today's episode, you'll hear from Elizabeth Earnshaw, a relationships teacher and counsellor who's writing on the subjects of attachment styles, communication, and parenting, have been featured on The Huffington Post, New York Times, and Oprah. Her ability to explain these emotionally charged and deep topics with effortless simplicity is just one of Elizabeth's amazing talents. We're not always going to be these like Zen creatures in our relationships, but we can try to aim towards most of the time being respectful um, and assuming the best and being kind. This episode was recorded and produced on Wurundjeri country, and I pay my respects to all First Nations listeners. Hi, Liz. Thank you for being with us. Hello. I'm so glad to be here. What time is it where you are? It is 5 p.m. 5 p.m. So it's 7 a.m. where we are, having a nice early start to talk to you. It's the best way to start the day, a nice conversation. And the best way to end my day is to have this nice conversation. What's your working hours like? Do you finish at five or? They're pretty random. I have a toddler. So in the summertime, (laughs) I end at like two, I pick him up and then I work again after he goes to bed. So it's all over the place. How old's your toddler? Well, actually, he's probably not a toddler anymore. He's turning five next week. Oh, wow. When do they graduate from toddlerhood I to? Don't know. What's the next stage up from toddler? Child? Just child? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I guess he's a child now. He's not a toddler anymore. Yeah, because I feel like for me anyway, I don't have a child, but I'm assuming toddler ends at like three, four. I guess it ends at four, but four, they don't feel yeah. like children at four. But he feels like a child now at about five. So Like a little man. Yeah. Yeah. Like a little man. That's really sweet. So thank you for being on our podcast. I discovered you probably a year and a half ago when I listened to you on a podcast and then I got your audiobook, and then I just had the idea to reach out to you and I thought she's never going to reply because I'm sure she's so busy. And then you did. Yes. I'm so excited to talk to you. Yeah. So I'm sure that a lot of people will be really interested in this topic because Everyone around me is constantly doing relationship work and therapy and delving into, you know, the depths of their Mm. internal world. I don't know if you found that. I mean, you're a psych, so you probably, you're always focused on it. Yeah, always. Exactly. So I wanted to ask you as a therapist, what it is about couples therapy that has, you know, drawn you into this line of work? Mm, Yeah. So I initially wanted to work with families, actually, and I worked with children and I worked with their parents. And when I was working with children, I realized that most of the work actually needed to be done with the parents. And so I started doing a lot of sessions with parents, working with them around, you know, what's going on with your children? How can we support your children? And there was always so much relational work that came into play. Mm. And when the parents were doing well, the children were doing so much better. And it was then that I kind of recognized that I liked working with the adults and helping them to thrive because... When the grownups thrive, kids do too. And I kind of moved into couples therapy from there. Mm, That's so nice. Yes, the 
trickle-down effect of, you know, the parents onto the children. Yeah. Yeah, That's so interesting. So do you have a particular therapeutic like schema or approach? Is there a particular school of thought that you follow? I do. Yeah. I started actually with something called narrative therapy. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of it. It's actually kind of originated in Australia, actually. So there's a center for it in Australia. I think it's in Melbourne, actually. We'll go there after this after this call. <laughs> yeah, you'll have to look it up. But that that theory is based around the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that other people tell about us and how that mm. impacts who we are as people. And if we can learn to kind of externalize those things and recognize them as stories, then we have a lot more power in changing how we feel, how we think, how we behave. So that was what I started with when I became a therapist. As I began to move into couples work, I actually moved into the Gottman method and I'm a certified Gottman therapist. It is probably the most researched method of all forms of couples therapy that exists. Yes. Great to know. Yes. Yeah. And so I'm certified in that. And that is, that's the main thing that I use with couples. I like what you said about the narrative, like what we tell ourselves, but also what's told to us, Yeah, you know, growing up. Because even even recently in my own therapy with, in terms of my relationships and everything, realizing that there are a lot of things that I've told myself, but even just stuff from my family that wasn't intentional, but just being told something as a little girl and the way I've carried that into my 30s. And yes. that then my therapist would say, who told you that? Or what makes you think that that's the way you are? And then just now just completely discarding that. And it was actually just an issue of me just needing to be cognitive about it and then just discard that thing. And now it's completely gone. Like it was actually a lot easier than you would have thought. Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. It was just about being aware of it. Yes. And once you notice how much power it's had and how Mm. difficult it's been to kind of break out of that narrative of who you are, quote, who you are, but not really who you are, you can start to change it. You can start to say, oh, everybody always says I'm the rebel, but I'm not actually the rebel. Or everybody always says I'm Mm. the disorganized one in the family, but am I actually that way? Or was I that way when I was five years old and now I've kind of grown out of it? And so it gives you a lot of power to recognize those stories. It does. Yeah. Like the concept of personality as well. My therapist was like pulling me up on things that I was saying were part of my personality. And she was saying, but are they, or are they sort of learnt behaviors? So it was just, it made me really think about, anyway, we've got much to talk about, so (laughs) we won't go into my personal therapy. Um, So how scientific is therapy? And do you like to think of therapy as science? Mm, That's such a good question. So therapy is an art and a science. Therapy has, you know, many modalities, which people are aware of some of them, right? You've heard of cognitive behavioral therapy. Mm. Now I've told you about narrative therapy, Gottman method therapy. There's all these different modalities and they're certainly researched. And The research um, kind of goes around following people through treatment and seeing what their outcomes are and all those types of things. But actually, there's a huge art component to therapy. So you could go to school, you could learn all of the theories, you could practice all of the science, but if you don't have the art, then it doesn't tend to go very well. And what they found is that the biggest predictor of successful therapy is the relationship that the client has with their therapist. That part is more important than any modality. So your therapist could do narrative therapy and you could say, well, I really wanted to go to them for CBT. Then you go to them and because the relationship is strong, you actually buy into therapy more, you work at it more. And so that art piece actually tends to be the most important part 
more important than the science sometimes. Mm, Such a good way of putting it. What are the most common challenges that couples face from your experience? Fun question. Uh, So there (laughs) are... A lot of people ask me. I'll give you a list. (laughs) I'll give you a list. Um, A lot of people ask me, oh, you must hear really spicy things or do you get lots of couples who have affairs and things like that? I would say most challenges are pretty, quote, run of the mill. So most people are coming in because they've gotten bored with each other. They're arguing about silly things and they want to learn how to argue differently. They have a big decision to make and they want to make sure that they make a good decision together. So most of the people are coming in for those things. People also come in, but it's a little bit more rare for really big ruptures. So this might be something like an affair. It might be something like a really bad argument where they said something that is very hard to repair. Um, And then there's another bucket of couples that come in because of grief and loss. So I see people who have had children die, who have learned that they're not able to have children together, um, or at least biological children, who have experienced some sort of loss professionally. So there's these three buckets, and I, I would say that they are communication issues, betrayals, so not just affairs, mm-hmm. but maybe gambling or something like that, and then grief and loss. It's so interesting because you, n- you never think about all the different categories that two people yeah. can go through because we're yeah. so used to a fairy tale in our mind. But it's just life. It's just life. And I see a lot of couples that go through all of those things through the lifespan. You know, I've met with couples who come to me before they're married because they're, they want to do premarital counseling and be pr- proactive. That's another bucket that I didn't include. There's a lot of people that come just because they want to be proactive, which is really sweet. I've met with couples at that point, and then, you know, a year later, I'll meet with them because they experience a pregnancy loss, and then a a year later, I'll meet with them because they're getting ready to move across the country, and it's going to cost a lot of money, and they're stressed about it. So people experience many different things across the lifespan, Mm. and if you're in a relationship, you're experiencing those things together, and it's really profound how challenging that can be, and also, obviously, how beautiful that can be. Yeah. Yeah. What kind of activities and conversations can you recommend for couples facing these kinds of problems in their relationships? So if there are problems, the first thing that I recommend is stepping back from trying to solve the problem and actually being able to identify what it is. I meet with so many people who don't actually know how to articulate the issue. So the couple will come Mm. in. And I'll say to them, what's the issue? And they'll both say, oh, it's communication issues. And I'll say, what's communication issues mean to you? (laughs) And one person will say, well, I just want more emotional intimacy. They don't tell me how they're feeling. They don't tell me how they're thinking. And the other person will say, oh, well, what I mean when I say communication issues is that we're fighting too much. And we just, we say mean things to each other and we argue a lot. And so the first thing you have to do is you have to try not to solve a problem because Most people don't define what their problem is in the first place. Step back Mm. and ask your partner, what do you see the problem being? And then try to answer that question without saying you. So try not to say you never talk to me about your feelings or you always argue with me. Try to pretend that you're putting the problem in front of you, like it's on a table in front of you and you have to describe it. You know, I've noticed that we aren't on the same page a lot of the time. Or when we try to talk about things, it never gets anywhere. Or I've noticed I feel lonely. 
I have been wanting a deeper connection. And so being able to talk from that I perspective is going to be much mm. more powerful than the you because that becomes a criticism. So the it's first so thing is to find that. Yeah, it's disarming because you're talking about yourself. You're not accusing the other person of anything. And at yeah. the end of the day, it is a feeling. So it's always up for discussion. You know what yes. I mean? It's like, well, this is what I feel, but someone else wouldn't feel that thing potentially. Yes, exactly. You know? And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about. You know, what are the stories they each tell themselves? And you have two people in the same relationship. They have completely different stories about the relationship though, right? And so yeah. you have to figure out what are those stories and then how do you come together to kind of unite the mm. vision here so that you can move forward. Yeah, it's it's so interesting because you just always yeah. see it in your little tunnel vi vision perspective. Totally. So one member of a couple often but not always, I'd like to be clear on that, not always women, tends to take on the greater part of the emotional labor of the pair. Yeah. maintaining ties to family, organizing social events, arranging outings and so on. How should couples navigate the abstract task of emotional labor in their relationships? Mm. Number one, admit that it exists. Really mm. important. It's really hard to tackle it if one person or both people are denying its existence, right? So being able to talk to your partner about it and bring it to their attention is incredibly difficult, but it's important. So if you're the one that's carrying it, likely you're the one that's going to have to bring it up. And that's frustrating because in itself, it's doing a little bit more <laughs> mental and emotional, emotional labor. Work, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But that's, that's the path to changing it and bringing it up in a non-critical way. And a lot of people will say, but you know, I am being critical. I'm mad at my partner. They're not pulling their weight. The problem is, is that you've both been socialized in this, mm. in this way. And so just as much as you've been socialized to take it on as second nature, to just, you know, be the one that remembers everything, to be the one that sets up the parties, to be the one that makes the phone calls and gets the cards and cleans the kitchen and da, 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 da. Your partner has been socialized not to notice any of those things if you're in this dynamic with your partner. And so it needs to be the two of you against socialization instead of the two of you against each other. And so being against socialization means sitting down and saying, what actually works for us as a couple? Mm. I've been socialized, and I'll use the example from my own marriage. I've I've been socialized to be the you know traditional woman in the family. My mother is like the epitome of motherhood. She throws parties and makes Christmas beautiful and the house is perfect, and she was stay at home and all of those types of things. I'm very good at all of that stuff, but I also work a full-time job. My husband was not socialized to notice if there's dust piling up on things. He doesn't care if there's stuff at the bottom of the steps, and he doesn't remember to RSVP to things. He just doesn't. <laughs> yeah. So we could battle about whether those things are important or are important enough, which we did, or I could say to him, I was socialized to do all of this. It's exhausting me. You were socialized not to notice it. We have to change that so that we can have a happy marriage. And how are we going to change it together? It's going to take a long time, but what you start to do is you start to recognize what tasks can I throw away? Which tasks should I keep? Because I actually like them. And which tasks need to be redistributed either to my partner or even outsourced? And again, this is a long process, but you have to tackle it together. When did you start noticing those things about yourself? After we had a baby, for sure. <laughs> 
<laughs> so, okay, so before then you didn't, you weren't aware of the impact of your family of origin as much until you had a child. Mm. No. I mean, there was other impacts on my fam- from my family of origin I was aware of, but not in terms of the way that we navigated, like, domestic life because mm. – it didn't impact me negatively. You know, not having a kid and being the one that throws the holiday parties and keeps in touch with friends and all of that stuff, that never bothered me because it wasn't over, it wasn't too much. When yeah. we had a kid, I was working and then I was also doing all the things I had done before and then I was doing all the kids' stuff. And I was like, something has got to give here. You know, not only am I doing everything I did before, but I'm also the only one remembering that the formula is almost empty and that the diaper genie has to be changed and that Mm. if we don't take him to get his shots next week, then we're not going to get an appointment for two weeks and then he's going to miss his vaccine status. Like, it becomes a lot of things that are new to remember. And I, I remember going to my therapist at the time and she was like, well, what what new things has your husband taken on? <laughs> and I was like, nothing. Nothing. Life is pretty much the same for him other than he has this beautiful baby. <laughs> well-fed baby. And a well-fed baby. And she told me about an article to read, and I'm lucky because I have a really wonderful partner. And I showed it to him, and it was all about the mental load. And he was kind of like, oh, my gosh. I I really don't do anything. This has to change. And we worked on it for many years. And actually now he takes on almost all the mental load. And I do very little of it at this point in our relationship. So so things can change. It's so nice that you approached it in a way that meant that it could just change because you're giving everyone the benefit of the doubt because it's not like people are deliberately not pulling their weight. And if they are, that's another issue, of course. But, you know, most of the time people aren't doing things on purpose to hurt anybody. It's just conditioning. Yes, exactly. You know, most, if you have a really kind, loving partner, they're not doing it to you on purpose. When you bring it up, it's actually a really good opportunity to also learn something, right? Because if my husband would have said, what the hell is this? I don't care about any of this. You know, get out of my face with that article. (laughs) I would have been like, oh, wow. I need to probably change some things in this marriage. I don't know if I can be in this. But my husband was very receptive to it. And I'm not saying it was always perfect. There were absolutely moments where I assumed the worst. I blamed him. I was critical. And there were absolutely moments where he said things like, you've got to be kidding me right now. Who cares about that? This is ridiculous. But overall, we were able to kind of work together to move forward. And I I I wanted to mention that because I think it's really important to think about it in realistic terms. You know, Mm. we're not always going to be these like Zen creatures in our relationships, but we can try to aim towards most of the time being respectful um, and assuming the best and being kind. Yeah, agreed. I want to talk about attachment styles and how they play out in relationships and your approach to them. So first, for everybody listening, if you don't know what attachment styles are, when we are very young, we have to bond to our adult caregivers, right? And so the way that we bond is by becoming attached. Now, if we have caregivers who are mostly, I like the word mostly because nobody's perfect. If we have caregivers who give us mostly what we need, which means most of the time when we cry, they come to us. When we're hungry, they feed us. They get our cues right most of the time. They try hard enough at it. 
And they also provide safe distance. That's also really important. So they allow us to explore. They allow us to kind of crawl away from them without freaking out. Um, as we grow, they allow us to experiment in safe parameters. If we have that, we develop what's called a secure attachment style in childhood, which means that we feel safe in relationships, that overall relationships don't create anxiety for us, and that we see them as a place where we can rely on people and get support, but we also mm -hmm. see ourselves as individuals who can rely on ourselves. Now, sadly, there's another type of attachment style, which is called insecure attachment, and this is broken down into a lot of different types, but insecure attachment develops when our caregivers either are really distant and neglectful, so emotionally neglectful or physically neglectful, or they're over-the-top anxious. So you try to mm. crawl, and they're like, oh my gosh, don't do that. You're going to get hurt. Stop. Da -da -da -da. And it provides a lot of anxiety within us. Or we could have mixed, which means that we have caregivers that are sometimes scary to us, and sometimes they are overly kind and overly hovering and kind of enmeshed with us. So if we have the mm. caregivers who are very distant, we develop what's called avoidant attachment, which means that we start to recognize over time that our cries go unheard. So we stop crying. We say, I'm not going to go to people for things. Nobody ever shows up. If we have a caregiver that hovers too much, but it's not actually that like secure sense of hovering. It's uh, I, the world is insecure and scary. We develop an anxious attachment style. So, or we might develop an anxious attachment style, which means, oh my gosh, I need you close all the time. If you're not close, I'm going to feel really anxious and I'm going to feel worried that you don't love me and da 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 da. Mm. And if we have the caregiver who is both a source of fear and comfort, then we might develop what's called disorganized attachment, which means mm. sometimes we want people to be close and sometimes we push them away. Now, all of this is on a spectrum. So I don't really think anybody's perfectly secure. And there's some people who are on the you know further end of anxious attachment where like it's really hard for them to even have space. Some people are on the really far end of avoidant where it's incredibly hard for them to be close at all. And then people fall kind of all over that, that spectrum. Now, one of the questions you asked is when people become adults and they partner, what happens in mm. the relationship? So our attachment styles are not stuck. They can change over time, which means that they're influenced by other relationships. So if as a child you have a secure attachment, but then you have three partners in a row who cheat on you, you're probably going to develop maybe yeah. some stuff that makes you feel unsafe. The opposite is true. If you have an insecure attachment and then you have teachers and friends and partners who are loving and safe and comforting, you could develop a secure attachment style. So this changes over time and it's really just meant as a way for you to kind of notice how safe do I feel in relationships? And if I don't feel safe, then how do I react? Do I react avoidantly by shutting down and withdrawing from people? Or do I act overly anxious by pursuing and chasing and not like reading the warning signs and not giving people space? Or do I act securely, which means I'm assertive, I say what I want, um, I'm caring and loving, but I also still have a self. So all of those things can play out in your adult relationships. The question you asked about, is it mostly similar um, or is it opposites? People tend to be attracted to their opposite unless they're securely attached. Securely attached people tend to find other securely attached people. Um, 
because that's just what they expect in a relationship. Yeah. People who are anxious and avoidant, they love each other. And it makes sense because they give the Mm. person the thing that they're missing. So the avoidant person loves the anxious person because that person is bringing them emotional vulnerability and connection and passion. And the person who is the anxiously attached person loves the avoided person because in the beginning, it actually probably feels pretty grounding and secure mm. and like, oh, you can be your own person. I like that. I, I, I wish that for myself. Now, as you can imagine, over time, it becomes challenging because they trigger each other in the relationship. Yeah. And do you think this is something that people can slowly unpack with therapy or do you think it's sort of your innate blueprint because of your childhood experience? Oh, it can totally be unpacked. And actually, one of the places that we know you can start to shift, if if you're in an insecure attachment style, one of the places we know you can begin to shift is in therapy because it is a inherently, or it should be an inherently safe relationship, which means Mm. that you know the boundaries, you know that the person, how they care about you, the ground rules are, are set, you can rely on it. Um, and so it's a safe container. So yeah. when people work with a therapist, uh, their attachment styles actually play out often. Mm. So someone who's more avoidant might be the type of client who cancels last minute or never tells the whole story or is very quiet in session. A person who's anxious might be a client who um, asks for more appointments at the last minute or like reads micro expressions on the therapist's face and thinks the therapist doesn't like them and is worried the therapist is going to break <laughs> up with them. <laughs> yeah. That's me. <laughs> That's definitely um, me. <laughs> Totally. I remember my therapist after I had a baby, I was like, do you think I'm crazy? Do you like me? Do you not, do you not want me to come back? (laughs) Did I do a good job? Did I do a good job? Um, but if you continue to work with that therapist, what can happen is that those feelings can begin to have opportunity to be soothed because Mm. you're seeing, oh, I read that expression, but then she still had me come back next week. She still yeah. had positive regard for me. She still likes me. Yeah. She's still here for me. And so it can be a really great place to kind of start to explore that. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah. So when you see these dynamics of a more closeness-seeking and retreating partner in couples, what's the best way to navigate this? Because I'm sure people listening have had this experience. Yeah. So it's a very common dynamic very common. Even with people who are more secure, there does even then tend to be someone who's a little bit more on that avoidant side and a little bit more on that closeness-seeking side. So one thing that can be really important is understanding how your partner ticks. Mm. If you can understand, and this is like what I talked about before, let's depersonalize it a little bit. If I can understand that when my partner feels anxious in the relationship, they retreat then instead of thinking they're abandoning me, they don't love me, I need that, I need to convince them to come back. What we can do instead is we can have compassion for them. Whoa, what's going on that they would kind of back away? What why do they need space mm-hmm. right now? Um, if we can understand that our partner who is closeness seeking is just really anxious because they are starting to feel as if they they can't read where the relationship is or if we love them or whatever, if I can understand that, then I can reassure them. 
hey, I noticed that you texted me a lot earlier. Um, is everything okay? You know, I just want to remind you, I love you. And I was just busy at work today, but I will always get back to you. So understanding the other person and how they tick can help you give them what they need. The second thing that's really important is having boundaries. So we can understand and have compassion for each other. And that doesn't mean that there's no limits, right? So the example I just gave, let's say your partner is closeness-seeking and they've been blowing up your phone all day while you're at work and you've been in meetings. So you're not ignoring them. Well, you know where they're coming from. You know that they're just worried that you don't love them or care about them. And it's also not okay that they called you 80 times in a row, right? Like both of those can be true. (laughs) So how do you have the understanding and the limit? And it kind of sounds like, honey, I just wanted to call you. I was in a really important meeting. I know when you do that, it's because you're really worried. There's nothing to worry about. I love you. And I'm not going to be able to answer my phone when I'm in meetings, period. So that's that limit alongside the compassion understanding. Um, other end of that, your partner's avoidant. I know you probably, I know you need space right now. So I'm going to give you an hour and then we do need to talk about this. We're not going to just ignore it forever. So that's having that understanding and still having a limit, still having a boundary and still saying what needs to happen in order for the relationship to be successful. Lovely. So obviously many couples these days are looking to find ways to include others outside of their nuclear family and relationships, particularly when it comes to raising kids. Hmm. What are the pros and cons of honouring the phrase, it takes a village? And what have been your experiences with couples in therapy going through this dynamic? It's such a good question. So it does take a village. You know, it's Mm -hmm. fairly new that people are raising their children in these like very small households. (laughs) That is not the norm across all cultures. You know, Mm -hmm. regardless of what culture you look at, people used to have family members living in the home or neighbors or nannies or whoever that really kind of helped out. We've kind of shrunk that, especially in Western society. It's very Australian. Yeah. Very Australian. Um, the U.S., no one has any help. COVID made it worse for a mm-hmm. lot of people where, you know, at least prior, they might have had a babysitter from across the street that would come help. And then while while COVID was in its peak, um, you weren't having anybody over. So not only do you have no village, but you also don't have as much capacity because most people are both working. And so you have two working people and you have children and you have no support. And there's almost this sense of shame for asking for it. And there's sometimes guilting for asking, right? Like I see a lot in our society of, oh, my children are always asking for help with the grandkids or, Mm. you know, my sister always wants X, Y, and Z. And it's like, well, yeah, that's historically how it worked. We need support, but there are some downsides. There's a concept in couples therapy called um, thirds that's really, really important to understand. A third is anything that can come into your relationship that can cause um, problems. So it could be another person, but it could also be a job that you have where you spend too much time. It could be a hobby. There's a lot of different things it could be. So people need to learn how to navigate thirds. Now, if you have this village helping you, but you don't know how to navigate thirds, 
then you and your partner are going to be at risk. Mm. And the reason that is, is because you might let too much influence, um, too many opinions come from the outside and not value your partner enough anymore. So as you're bringing people in, you need to make sure you talk together about how are we going to have each other's backs? So your mother's going to help us with things. And I want to make sure at the end of the day that if it's, not really helpful, or if it starts to feel bad, that together we are a united front. So Mm -hmm. we need a village, but we also need to be the united front at the helm of that village when we're kind of accepting that help. Yeah, that's a nice summary. I became more aware of how the nuclear family is such a strong element in Australian family raising when I lived overseas for a long time in Istanbul, And Naples, obviously the south of Italy is very Mediterranean and Istanbul is a lot more community-minded. And then coming back to Australia, I was like, wow, everyone feels quite isolated here with their families. Yeah. So that's when I started to really realise that. But I don't think I would have, maybe through therapy, but I don't think I would have noticed it as much. What do you think you admired when you saw the way that they navigated it? I think I like the fact that it feels to me that it takes the pressure off just two primary caregivers to be the only examples in a child's life. Mm -hmm. Whereas I think they do need, you know, aunties and your best friends who become their godparents or like their aunties and just other examples of ways to be because I think you can become quite rigid if you grow up with just two parents and that's just your way of being because otherwise how do you, what models do you have? I agree. And it's interesting When I work with people who have just had children, what I've noticed is that people who come from either a more Mediterranean culture or I I have a lot of clients and friends who are of Asian descent, that it's so common to have so many people involved that it's right, right? It's almost like, what do you mean I wouldn't have my child exposed to all these people? But when I work with couples who are kind of moving into this more isolated version of parenting, I've actually noticed more rigidity with the parents as well, Mm, Yeah, where there's a lot of rules. So there's a lot of like, which I think is becoming problematic, the number of rules we have about how to interact with our children. Like there need to be some rules, but there's a there's so many rules with this isolation where people will say things like, I don't like it when, you know, so-and-so comes over because we don't eat chocolate in my house and they talk about chocolate or something like that. And it's like, well, your child needs to know that people talk about chocolate. (laughs) I mean, that's a silly example. But when you have families where there's exposure, you don't need to control your child's experience Mm. so much. You keep them safe, but you also recognize that while you and your partner maybe don't give them cupcakes, that maybe grandma does give cupcakes. And that's just how the child like learns to navigate life. And I worry about kids, like you said, if they're only having this experience with these two parents who are kind of having their own rigid rules and ways of living, how do they then navigate others? Mm. How do they go to other people's homes and live within other cultures and understand, like, I I can pick and choose, like, how to behave based off of, of who I'm around. Yeah, and I think you can almost become overly fragile to the outside world if you're brought up in that really insular environment and you could reject a lot of the world purely because you were never exposed to it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. So yeah, it's interesting to find that balance, obviously, because, you know, you need to be very present for your children and your family, but at the same time, 
You can't protect them from the world forever. No, no, you can't. So the last question, without revealing obviously any identifying information, is there a couple you worked with whose story has always stuck with you? Hmm, there is. And I'm trying to think of how I could change the information enough that it's not too identifying. It's not revealing. Yeah. Hmm. So there's a couple I worked with who had been married for a really, really long time. They were maybe married for 50 years at the point I had seen them. And they had a particular argument that they got into all of the time that was really hurtful to them both. And they would come in and they would talk about this argument. And in Gottman Method Couples Therapy, when we hear people having the same argument again and again, what we know is that it's not actually about that specific thing. We know it's about something deeper. And so we stop people and we say, hey, let's let's not talk about this thing. I want to talk to you about where this is coming from and what it attaches to in the big picture. So with this couple, Mm -hmm. I, I did that with them. And we kind of talked about, you know, when you think about this issue, one of the questions we ask is when you think about this issue, what's your philosophy on it, right? And so people have all these shoulds. So the couple said, well, I think that people should do X, Y, and Z. And the other person said, well, I think they should do this. And I said, where'd you learn that? What story does that come from in childhood? And it's always a powerful story with couples that comes up when I ask that question about their perpetual problem. But with this one in particular, it was so striking because they were in their late 70s or 80s at this point in their life. And the story attached to when they were children. And they sat, they each shared a story and both of their stories were about neglect. One of the stories was about emotional neglect. So they said, you know, my philosophy on this is because I'm trying to protect myself from the emotional neglect I had as a child. And the other person said, Mm -hmm. well, I had really bad physical neglect. And so when we're fighting about this thing, I'm trying to protect myself from that. I didn't have access to anybody. I didn't have access to anything. And I, I want the thing that we fight about because it truly relates to the, the true neglect. Like this person got nothing, no toys, nothing. The, the other partner got lots of things, but no love. No, yeah. I love you, you're cute, whatever. And so they went all the way to their childhood and it came to the surface that they had been having this perpetual argument about a very different philosophy they have in life for the past 15 years or so, but it was all based on trying to protect themselves from neglect that they had suffered in childhood, but they had never been able to use those words. They had never been able to say, you know, honey, the reason I disagree with you is because when I grew up, I never got X, Y, and Z. And so when Mm. you do this thing, it makes me feel that neglect again. And I'm just trying to protect myself from it. So in this conversation, they finally shared that with each other. And they never argued about the thing again because it was like, oh, God, I don't want to make you Mm. feel, you know, I don't want to make you feel neglected with things. And the other person was able to say, I would never want you to feel emotionally neglected. I can't believe that's how you've been feeling within all of this. And so they were able to come together with a solution that worked better for both of them. And I'll always remember it. And it still gives me goosebumps because it shows even if you're 100 years old, if you haven't really brought to the surface some of the childhood stuff, 
it still play, it can play a huge role in your arguments. Yeah. Wow. Powerful. It was so powerful. Yeah. That was the last question, but your answer to my question raises one last question to me. Yeah. Do you think all couples need therapy? I think that they all would benefit from it because, you know, I don't think they all need it. I think some people could go their whole lives and not have it and be okay. But I think that if you go, especially if you go and you are in a stable, loving relationship, it can really provide so much depth. You know, you can go further with each other. You can learn more about each other just because you have that guidance of someone that can help you unpack things a little bit differently and talk about things differently than you would than you would know how to do on your own. Yeah. Well, that was inspiring. Thank you so much, Liz. Thank you for having me. It was so good to talk to you. This podcast was produced by Zoltan Fetcho and the Cleopatra's Bling team with original music by Cameron Alva. If you liked the show, share it with a friend and leave us a few stars on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you're signed up to the newsletter on cleopatrasbling.com to keep up with the newest updates on all things Cleopatra's Bling. Next time on the Cleopatra's Bling podcast. I cannot write if I haven't fully surrendered to the moment and to the page. And similarly, I cannot play the piano without fully listening to what the notes are saying to me. Until next time, stay curious.